0: You're listening to the COVID-19 Update,
1: a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. I'm joined today by my two dear colleagues, Catherine Bliss and Anna Carroll, Andrew Schwartz is on vacation and regrettably cannot be with us today, so I'll be doing this solo. Catherine, Anna, and I published, jointly published last week, a brief put out by CSIS titled, Is It Possible to Avert Chaos in the Vaccine Scramble? We worked very hard on this over the past month or six weeks. It is available on the CSIS website. We've circulated it quite widely, why did we do this? We did it because the race, the scramble for a COVID-19 vaccine, as we indicate at the very front end of this paper, is unprecedented in its scope, its speed, its scale, its complexity, and its urgencies. And the stakes could not be higher for the entire world. Certainly couldn't be any higher for the United States, which leads the world now with over 5 million cases and over 160,000 deaths, as uncontrolled outbreaks proliferate across the country, triggering a worsening economic crisis and social strife. And the stakes are no less profound for other countries. Together with improved diagnostics and therapeutics, a safe and effective COVID-19 vaccine will be fundamental to ending the pandemic, restarting the world's economy, and mitigating the cascade of crises that are on the horizon, especially among lower income countries extreme poverty famine civil unrest and instability if we can't get control over this we started this also because we recognize not only how important this topic is how fundamental this is but it's a confusing topic and it's a fast-moving one and geopolitics are at the very center of what's going on nationalism is dominating and, and we argue in the paper, we'll get into this in the course of the podcast, it is creating high risks, high risks that there will be wealthy winners and not so wealthy and not so pow- powerful losers in this race. And we better think hard about that. We also, in the course of this paper, spent a lot of time talking about this new initiative began in April at the ACT Accelerator, and within it, that portion of this effort, that's an umbrella, we'll hear more about the ACT Accelerator in a moment, within it is the COVAX vaccine pillar. It includes GAVI, the Vaccine Alliance, and it includes CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. We wanted to put a focus in this paper upon this very promising, still Nashant initiative? What's it going to take? What is it seeking to do in terms of bringing benefits, guaranteed benefits in a timely and reliable way to low income and lower middle income countries that could be left in the dark or by the side of the road? We also recognize this is a big moment for U.S. choices. And we make some, we'll get into this in the course of, the, of, the, of this podcast. We made some concrete recommendations about how the United States needs to graduate from a very nationalistic approach to something that blends nationalism with a more internationalist outlook. So we'll get to all of that. So I'm going to come back to where we started and say, okay, let's begin with the ACT Accelerator and COVAX, and let's try and unpack what is this, how would it work, what's the rationale behind this? And I'm going to ask Catherine to lead us off with that. Catherine, tell us a bit more about the ACT Accelerator, and the COVAX Vaccine Pillar.
2: Well, thank you. So the ACT Accelerator is the Accelerating Access to COVID-19 Tools Instrument. So that's why it's called ACT. And essentially, it has three main components to advance work on diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines around COVID-19. And as you mentioned, it was formed back in the spring through collaboration among major international organizations and non-governmental groups, including the World Health Organization, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Wellcome Trust, CEPI, and GAVI, among others. The vaccine pillar within the ACT Accelerator includes the COVAX facility which is essentially intended to accelerate equitable access to an appropriate, safe, and effective vaccine or vaccines once they are approved. Now, that facility includes the COVAX Advanced Market Commitment, or the AMC, which is meant to essentially guarantee market demand for a sufficient volume of vaccines and really just kind of incentivize manufacturers to develop and produce the vaccines. And the idea is that all countries in the world are invited to join the COVAX facility by essentially making a commitment to purchase a certain number of vaccine doses and putting money up front. And the facility will then negotiate the price of the vaccines when they're available with manufacturers. High income countries would put in their own money. And lower-income countries and lower-middle-income countries, you know, some of those countries that are already eligible for GAVI support would be supported through contributions or donations. And GAVI is overseeing the facility and the ANC. And GAVI has done these kinds of ANCs before for the pneumococcal vaccine, I think back in 2009, 2010, and also the Ebola vaccine more recently. And the estimates are that at least $18 billion is needed to get this initiative off the ground and really make it successful, with $2 billion for the ANC, essentially in the first year, to serve the most vulnerable populations in some of the diverse GAVI-eligible countries. We ultimately don't really know what the full costs will be toward the end of 2021 and and beyond because we don't know what the cost of the vaccine will be or how many doses will really be required and that kind of thing. But it is looking like it will require a significant collaboration and investment among a large variety of countries.
1: The negotiations that are going on now within Congress and between Congress and administration around the next COVID-19 funding instrument. There is a $3 trillion Heroes Act passed by the democratically controlled House. There is a $1 trillion Republican bill in the Senate, which does include some funding for Gavi to procure and distribute vaccines, an estimated $3 billion. Why, why is that in this bill, do you believe? And how did it get to this point where a Republican Senate bill contain something like this. We don't have any other international provisions in the House bill, putting money into international. This is new for this bill, for this sort of practice. Uh, it's part of that 3 billion it's part of a 4.4 4 billion uh, package of measures on COVID-19 contained in that Senate bill. Catherine, you want to add any more context to why we see that there now?
2: Sure. I mean, the United States has been a longstanding supporter of Gavi since the alliance was founded in, you know, the year 2000. I mean, so just recently in February, as Gavi was anticipating its next uh, five-year cycle and looking toward its replenishment, the United States announced a, I think, a four-year commitment with essentially, you know, flat funding at $290 million per year. And support for Gavi has been a bipartisan effort and really an area of collaboration, you know, around immunizations, you know, between uh, both parties for quite a long time. And so I think, you know, seeing support for any kind of international initiative, it would be logical to think that, that Gavi would would figure very strongly in any of those kinds of discussions. You know, one thing that is interesting is the United States has not, in previous advanced market commitments, supported um, supported those. And I think, you know, I've heard there, there may be legal reasons that, you know, have to be legal hurdles that have to be overcome and, and some other areas of discussion. And so, you know, it may take some time for some of that to be ironed out. But, you know, it certainly seems that the effort to support GAVI and support the efforts of the COVAX facility you know, makes sense when we look at the, you know, larger trajectory of, you know, U.S. global health security policies, including the strategy that was released a few years ago that, you know, state very clearly that the United States, you know, sees supporting immunizations worldwide as a critical component of its own health security strategy. And so, you know, as these discussions go forward, that aspect of uh, bipartisan support for immunizations, you know, will it will be interesting to see how it plays out.
1: This is a huge, potentially, this is a huge undertaking for GAVI and CEPI, both. Is GAVI going to be capable, do you think, of handling such, as such an expansive mandate?
2: Yeah, you know, I've wondered about that. The eligibility rules have been expanded somewhat, you know, in the sense that, you know, normally for GAVI, I think it's uh, an annual GNI per capita of $1,630. And I for the COVID um AMC, I think it's four thousand dollars. So that expands the number of countries. But yeah, I mean, also managing the letters of commitment and the contributions by the much larger set of countries that are, you know, have indicated interest in joining COVAX will certainly require a great deal of additional, I would think, um, human resources and, you know, expertise in terms of dealing with, you know, a much broader range of of countries, including some, you know, that really, you know, haven't either been in that donor pool of contacts and networks that that have already been established, or, you know, the ones who have been, you know, already within the GAVI list of eligible countries. So it seems that it will require some expansion of capabilities and and resources. I mean you know, not just financial resources, but also just, you know, the sort of the manpower to get it done.
1: Now there's a certain amount of urgency here, right? I mean the Gavi, in speaking with Gavi, you know, it's clear that they are conducting multiple conversations with high-income countries, self-financing countries, hoping to get them to sign letters of commitment um they are engaged in lots of conversations attempting to bump up the support for they have this amc the fir- target for the first phase two billion dollars for the first phase startup money they've got 600 million pledged um towards that from donors but they need to get that number up too and they anticipate uh, beyond that another 3.4 3.5 billion rapidly in, in need. So that fundraising urgency is is upon us and we hopefully will be seeing the fruits of that shortly. There's some deadlines approaching in August and, and looking forward, but there is certainly an urgency. The manufacturers, the dev- vaccine developers are going to need really pretty firm commitments of cash upfront in order to set aside dosages as they go into manufacturing for this purpose so they need to turn the corner from concept to operational reality and they need to have a lot of cash in hand and that's where we are right now and hopefully this will bear bear sufficient fruit to be able to to move things forward and um, the question i wanted to put to you is describe for us the rationale behind trying to get a multitude of donors to come forward and self-financing countries to come forward in supporting a pool of vaccines, not a one-off, you know, a deal with this firm and a deal with that developer or manufacturer, but a pool. What's the logic and the rationale for that approach?
0: So I think that there's a recognition that if we continue on this trajectory, which is wealthy countries responding to sort of overwhelming domestic pressure to procure or develop vaccines for their own populations. The result could be that lower-income countries, lower-middle-income countries, even middle-income countries could not see a vaccine, not get a vaccine for several years down the road. And there's a lot more research that's emerging about all the different sort of cascade downstream effects of that reality. So not only would that you know create enormous global inequities and you'd have you know huge swaths of the global population, particularly the poorest and the most vulnerable, not having access to a vaccine, so you'd see you know, more COVID cases, you'd see more COVID deaths. We would see you know terrible repercussions on, on local health systems and particularly you know weak health systems in some of these lower income and fragile states. And then, you know, that's not even to to mention the the economic impact, which is already estimated to be 12 trillion globally over the next year. So, you know, the the downstream effects of huge swaths, and particularly again in these sort of fragile and vulnerable parts of the world, not having access to a vaccine as a result of a global, you know, vaccine effort that's dominated by, you know, individual nationalistic approaches could be pretty catastrophic. And that's pretty much where we're headed right now. Before the ACT Accelerator, you know, was initiated, for the most part, we were just seeing countries doing, as you were saying, bilateral deals. There were some exceptions in Europe, but there wasn't really a concerted effort to ensure that lower income countries and middle income countries could have access as well. So that's part of the rationale. And then the other part is that, you know, nationalism for you know, vaccine nationalism as a strategy and as an approach within, in and of itself is not risk-free and it's complicated given the, the very sort of transnational nature of vaccine development. Um, so you know, for, in order to develop and manufacture vaccines at scale, you'll require things like glass vials and all sorts of other materials that are caught up in a global supply chain. And so, you know, countries pursuing vaccines just totally independently with their blinders on with no sort of type of collaboration will pretty much guarantee major supply chain disruptions as, you know, different countries jockey to sort of manufacture at scale simultaneously. Um, And then a collaborative approach helps to reduce that. And vaccine nationalism, because it's competitive and, and countries are competing for access to the most promising vaccines, that inherently drives the prices up. And that, again, sort of aggravates inequity. So I think for all of those reasons, there's a recognition that if there's not some concerted global effort, you know, like, like joining COVAX and the COVAX facility to pool resources from higher income countries to pool risk that you know, the results could be really catastrophic for large loss of the global population. And I think right now what we're seeing is a real absence of U.S. leadership in particular in that effort and a real need for U.S. leadership in COVAX to, to then sort of garner and, and help to accumulate more support and donor input from, from other countries.
1: Thanks. Let's talk a little bit before we get to the U.S. posture. Let's talk a little bit about the European Commission. The head of the European Commission is Ursula von der Leyen, former Minister of Defense in Germany. She is, in fact, a physician, and she took a surprising and welcome leadership role in pulling donors together in early May to raise $8 billion for spreading across vaccines, therapies, diagnostics, the full spectrum she put muscle behind that. But we have to be also aware that there are lots of intense pressures upon all of the 27 EU member states, but also upon the leadership of the European Commission that serves the European Union, serves those member states. Anna, what is the balance of pressures right now upon Ursula von der Leyen and the European Commission? How much can we expect from them in this moment in time?
0: Yeah, you know, I mean as you said she she demonstrated real leadership early on, you know, in helping to co-convene this, this initial pledging moment for the ACT Accelerator. And that was really successful in raising $8 billion, you know, for all three pillars. And then she can help to co-convene a second pledging moment in June that raised a little bit more, just $389 million for the ACT Accelerator. So she's demonstrated leadership and she's, she's clearly committed in principle to COVAX. But as you say, she's facing, you know, just devastating challenges, economic and health at home. Uh, You know, in the the EU. So I I think you know what we're seeing now is a lot of there have been seventy-five over seventy-five formal expressions of interest in joining COVAX, and they have countries have until the end of the month to make sort of a firm commitment and pony up cash. But I think that there's this sort of trepidation, and there's a need really for all these countries to sort of jump together and come together. And what is unclear is whether there's going to be sort of sufficient leadership either from von der Leyen or from you know, for perhaps the U.S., you know, in a best case scenario, to pull those countries together to say, okay, you know, we're going to invest in COVAX and and pool our risk, pool our resources and make sure that we have some degree of equitable distribution, you know, if and when a vaccine is discovered. But she's in a particularly difficult spot. And I think it just remains to be seen whether, you know, the leadership she demonstrated early on is really going to come to fruition here in in the form of really a really significant, you know, injection of cash into, into COVAX at this particular critical point.
1: Right. She has to negotiate, as she has, a massive new funding facility to stabilize the the EU member states that can bring together support from the wealthy northern states that are very conservative around such things and benefit also those that are more in the southern tier that are less wealthy and, and more in need. But also both as a collaboration, the EC is a collaborating entity, but also on an individual state level, and these are countries that are that are desperate to lock up their own shares, right to lock up those shares and they're signing those bi- bilateral agreements and multilateral agreements with the vaccine developers and manufacturers. And so while they're showing rhetorical interest in this, they're holding back for now hopefully they will lean forward and make those commitments and, and secure those soon. But the first order of business in the midst of this pandemic crisis that affects the entire planet, is that countries are looking out for their own and and struggling with both the health and requirements to guarantee they secure a vaccine, but also to deal with the economic crisis that's in front of them.
0: Steve, I, I would just add, you know, and we were pretty explicit in the paper that there's no expectation that, you know, these countries would abandon their, their nationalist approaches entirely, Be, you know, because the domestic pressures are so intense, you know, there's an understanding that those bilateral deals are going to, you know, remain in place for many countries and the wealthiest countries will continue to pursue them, you know, the argument we were making was that they, they can also make room for and invest in, you know, this more multilateral international collaborative approach and that in the end, you know, that will benefit their health and economic security.
1: Right. Let's talk a little bit about the United States. Now, the the administration has, you know, in May launched formally Operation Warp Speed. It's an effort that's backed by $10 billion in commitment. It is a joint enterprise between the Health and Human Services Department and the Department of Defense. And within HHS, of course, you have BARDA, uh, which is financing much of the work, and you have the National Institutes of Health, which is also financing field trials and partnering in some of these field trials. You have DOD in the form of four-star general Gustav Parna, head of the Army Materiel Command, taking responsibility around logistics supporting field trials, supporting preparations for the distribution of the vaccines that are deemed safe and effective ultimately. We have a link to industry in the form of uh, Monsef Salawi, an esteemed vaccine developer, a very distinguished career at GSK, who's come on as a chief scientific officer under Operation Warp Speed, joined there with General Perna. The effort has put That's on six major vaccine candidates and with lots of cash around getting them through the field trials and beginning to produce on scale, to manufacture on scale, well before they know whether or not these vaccines are truly going to be safe and effective. So it's it's a high risk, but urgent high speed effort at paying the premium, the at risk premium to get that speed so that when we do know what's going to work and not work, we can produce immediately those vaccines and get them out. Now, this effort has been overwhelmingly a nationalist effort looking to serve the interests of the 330 million Americans, planning for a, the likelihood of a two-dose vaccine requirement. It may be multiple vaccines ultimately um, that are being used. We see a similar parallel effort underway in China. We see a similar parallel effort, very controversial within Russia. Uh, the U.S. brings extraordinary depth of expertise, scientific uh, muscle. This is now a unified, unitary effort that is able to really command the, the cooperation across the administration, across executive agencies. And it's made these bets. It's the, it may make additional bets on these vaccines. Anna, tell us a little bit, just quickly give us a quick overview of what those bets are.
0: Sure. So Operation War Speed, as you said, is a $10 billion initiative, and so far we've put down or established massive contracts with six different pharmaceutical companies or firms. So $2.1 billion has gone to Sanofi and GSK, $1.9 billion to Pfizer, $1.6 billion to Novavax, $1.2 billion to AstraZeneca, $1 billion to Moderna, uh, half a billion to J&J and 38 million to mark. So this is six different vaccine candidates. It's a fairly diverse portfolio, but as we we discuss in the paper, the odds of vaccine development are pretty tough. So the larger the portfolio you can invest in, the better. Six is good. More would be better. And one of the other advantages of COVAX that we, we didn't discuss yet is that it has an, a you know the largest portfolio basically in existence today because again it's pooling risk and resources. But um the US is certainly, you know, demonstrating really exceptional, you know, muscle and, and obviously resources here.
1: Now these bets by the United States in these six firms, and that may grow in number. There may be additional ones. We haven't seen much transparency in terms of the criteria by which these were selected as against others, but we do know that they, the pool leans in the direction of experimental, of new technologies, of new platforms. Tell us a bit, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that these are experimental or new platforms. And why is there so much enthusiasm around moving f- so much faster than has been the case historically up to now? The, before now, the, the mumps vaccine was the fastest vaccine. took four years from 1963 to 67 to develop that. Um, so tell us a bit about what does it mean to say these are experimental or new platforms and why are we Why are people so excited and optimistic that we can move with so much greater speed now?
0: The traditional vaccine is a um, inactivated form of the virus that causes infection. And so this is something it's you know a sort of a tried and true approach. There's a large manufacturing base and sort of supply chain base to produce that type of vaccine. So in that sense it has some benefits in the current sort of scramble or race because the infrastructure is there to produce those types of vaccines at scale. However, they take a little bit longer to produce and manufacture than these newer platforms, which some of which are these RNA and DNA vaccine platforms, which deliver essentially instructions to your cells to produce the the spike protein on the outside of the coronavirus, which is then what triggers the the immune response. Um, So you, you don't actually risk you know, there's, there's no sort of infectious agent that's being injected with the vaccine, as is the case with an inactivated vaccine. And the benefit of these RNA DNA platforms is that they can be produced much more quickly. However, they have not yet been approved for, for human use. I'm fairly certain across any disease area, certainly coronavirus, this would be the first successful coronavirus vaccine approved for human use. But so they so they have the benefit of speed, these new platforms, and they also have the benefit of just sort of, they're, they're very adaptable. You can, you can change out those instructions for different you know, viral threats. Um, and so in, in that sense, they could be a real game changer in the long-term in terms of global health security. Um, but in this, in this current moment, it still sort of remains to be seen whether they'll be successful. But Moderna, for example, is one of the more promising ones that's shown really promising results in its clinical trials.
1: They've gone into phase three human field trials this month, and then we have Pfizer coming on in September and J&J thereafter, right? That's right. We'll have three fairly soon, each one 30,000 uh, participants. Uh, the, the Moderna spread over 89 sites within the United States. These are complicated To get that sort of scale, and you you multiply that by five or six, you've got a lot of people going into field trials that have to be coordinated, organized. We need to enlist a diversity of people in terms of people of color, people of different ages. We need to have elderly in these field trials for them to be meaningful and the like. Catherine, there's been a lot of discussion around what's in the hearts and minds of American citizens vis-a-vis vaccines, and do they trust this administration, are they skeptical and hesitant about vaccines in general? Uh, What is the current climate and mood within the United States? And what does that imply in terms of actions that the administration will need to undertake in order to guarantee success if we have a safe and effective vaccine, but we need to get a voluntary compliance by our population, we need to get a certain percentage taking the vaccine in order to achieve herd immunity and success. Over to you, Kat.
2: So, you know, the past two decades of research around immunization programs, you know, have really begun to center very much on the role of confidence and trust in both the health system and in the public system, the government more generally in terms of the population's willingness to accept vaccines and to, you know, really have a successful immunization program. And one of the things that, you know, we've been seeing recently in the United States is a great deal of concern about the speed at which the work on vaccines is proceeding. And, you know, you can look at headlines across, you know, any number of different, you know, newspapers or news outlets, you know, with everyone from, you know, fairly high-level scientists to, you know, sort of regular parents interviewed at, at clinics or on the street, you know, really expressing concern over the speed and the ability of the the government to assure uh, customers assure patients that that a vaccine will be safe and effective and you know recent polling has suggested that you know maybe up to 50% of the population you know will be accepting of a vaccine and those numbers go down even further when you begin to look at communities like African American communities and Latin American communities in the United States that have historically faced you know a great deal of you know mistrust with the health system overall and so you know, finding ways to communicate the science behind vaccines, to communicate with transparency how the trials have been undertaken and what the different risks and benefits are. And, you know, showing the population, you know, if assuming that there is a safe and effective vaccine developed in, in a You know, fairly quick timeline, showing the population that, you know, public officials themselves are willing to get vaccinated, to show people that they're doing that, and to be able to communicate with multiple generations and with many different kinds of communities, you know, in a way that is meaningful about the risks and about the advantages of taking a vaccine is critically important. You know, I think you know one of the examples that we talk about in the paper is you know what happened in the Philippines with the introduction of a vaccine uh, dingvaxia against dengue uh, a number of years ago and that was a vaccine that had actually it had been developed over you know 20 or so years and had been you know tested and you know believed to be you know safe and efficacious but as it was introduced in the Philippines the communication uh, with families was limited in terms of some of the risks that might be expected and And, you know, ultimately, uh, there were a number of negative effects, I think, you know, especially for children who had already had another form of dengue that, you know, led to more serious reactions. And in the end, you know, what happened was not only a backlash against the dengue vaccine, but ultimately decreasing immunization coverage across a broad number of vaccines as people became very nervous and mistrustful of the government.
1: Thank you. Let's turn in the closing segment of this conversation let's turn back to the United States. We're making an argument in this paper that the US policy which is overwhelmingly nationalist in approach thus far should become a blend, should should we're not arguing against uh, taking care of America first. Uh, we're arguing that we need to attend to those objectives while also adding in an international approach that pays higher attention to what happens outside of our borders, particularly with reference to low income and lower middle income countries who are at risk of being left at the end of the queue with an indefinite delays and the like. Um, Anna, why should the US change this policy and how is this going to advance? How would this hybrid strategy a blending of nationalism and internationalism, how is this going to advance US national security interests?
0: I mean, I think nationalism, vaccine nationalism is problematic for all the reasons we, we discussed earlier. But I think, you know, even fundamentally, just attempting to, to vaccinate all Americans as if we sort of live in a bubble isn't is is ignoring the reality of the highly globalized and interconnected world that we live in. You know, I think when we make this argument in the paper that, you know, just fundamentally by trying to vaccinate all Americans, notwithstanding all the challenges that Catherine just outlined, America will not be safer and a lot a lot of Americans, you know, living abroad, deployed forces. American interests overseas will continue to be jeopardized if the rest of the world, you know, descends into greater health and economic crises while, you know, the majority of Americans are vaccinated. So I just think as a strategy, um, it's got some really fundamental vulnerabilities that could be addressed or mitigated if the United States expands its COVID-19 vaccine strategy to include an international and and collaborative component.
1: Is this something that you think we can afford as a country?
0: Certainly. Yeah. Um, You know, the the investments that are required, you know, COVAX is asking for 18.1 billion and that's, you know, in some, you know, we're investing 10 in Operation Warp Speed. And, you know, I want to be cognizant of the, the obviously, the challenges they're facing on the Hill right now in, in coming to a, a deal and an agreement. But I think certainly it's something that, you know, the the, the upfront investments seriously outweigh um, the long-term costs. You know, again, coming to where the global economies, is losing, losing $500 billion uh, a month with as COVID sort of runs. Um, runs its course. So anything we can do to arrest that, you know, not again, you know, from a global perspective, I think would be strategic. And the other thing that we point out in the paper is that the U.S. has contracted for many more vaccines than it actually needs for domestic purposes.
1: So we could wind up with surplus capacity. Right. With A lot of surplus capacity.
0: Exactly. So we could make a commitment now to provide that ex- those excess doses to lower and lower middle income countries participating in COVAX.
1: Yeah, there's another dimension to this, another sensitivity, which is, of course, COVAX is a tripartite activity undertaken by WHO together with Gabby and CEPI. And we have an administration that has announced that it is terminating its relationship over the coming year with WHO and redirecting its funding towards other other partners. And so this creates a little bit of dissonance, uh, political dissonance in the sense of a formal commitment by this administration to an entity that has WHO as one of its partners well how do we get around that
0: well there are two other partners involved <laughs> i mean look this will be this will be an awkward argument for this administration in particular to make to the american people because you know it's advocating for a collaborative approach that seems to you know in its face sort of clash with the america first platform that this administration has embraced however i think that you know the arguments have to be made the ones that we made in the paper that ultimately investing and in ensuring access for you know the, the most vulnerable across the world will make americans and american interests safer
1: right and i think you know if you look at the three billion dedicated in the senate republican bill doesn't say this is for Covax. It says this is for Gabby to procure and distribute vaccines. And so you had Senate leadership put that forward with the acquiescence or concurrence of someone in this administration that agreed. As long as we're not talking, we're not putting their, you know, putting WHO front and center in this. There are workarounds. There's the possibility that you can get folks to agree to do this and just try to buy, sidestep step the complexities around WHO. Uh, Catherine, what is it? Can you just give us a quick synopsis what is it concretely that we're arguing that the United States should do that it's not doing today
2: Well first of all look i mean we have to recognize that you know this strictly nationalist approach is not in tune with the last two decades of U.S. you know foreign policy around global health. The United States has been very collaborative and you know supported a broad number of, of coalitions and you know I mean from you know the Global Fund and Gavi to um, you know supporting you know the the idea that it would lower and in middle income countries it would it would support them in getting the H1N1 vaccine back in two thousand nine. The United States. So it's
1: coming back to coming back to a legacy of U.S. leadership. So it's re-embracing something that. Right. It's, that it's really has been out there for a few decades. What else do we want the U.S. government to do? The
2: United States has already been a longtime supporter of Gavi. It's already announced a renewed commitment to Gavi, but the United States could raise its annual commitment to Gavi and make a contribution to SEPI, which it hasn't done yet. And, you know, that That, you know, could be something, you know, very tangible that would advance not only research, but also the ability to strengthen outreach and distribution of vaccine to other countries. Uh, The United States should join the COVAX facility, which could be a very good way to diversify investments in the event some of the products being supported through Operation Warp Speed don't work out. I mean, that seems like a win-win proposition. The United States should continue to support countries' bilateral programs on immunization because you know we have to recognize that the successful distribution of any covid-19 vaccine is going to depend on strong immunization systems which have been very hard hit you know with the diversion of resources you know during the the earlier months of the pandemic and you know with you know we've seen immunization coverage across the United States and in many many countries around the world drop you know as people have been afraid to even go into you know health clinics during this period and so reinforcing and supporting countries through bilateral engagement around vaccines is also you know something that the United States can do right now
1: it's also it would be very useful if the United States committed on two other fronts i mean one would be the principle of trying to have uniformity across the world in bringing vaccines to the populations that most need them that 20% requirement of maybe it's less than 20 but those those who are the health providers those who are contributing to critical infrastructure who are ser- critical service providers those who are the elderly or those with underlying conditions who are the most vulnerable that's something we could commit to. If we're going to have excess capacity, we could commit formally to say that we will pledge that, that, ex, that, that excess capacity can go towards, towards Gabby. We can pledge that we would give Gabby the right of first refusal for excess. I mean, we, uh, for the future. That would go a long way, I think, also towards building goodwill and also using US leadership to stimulate other wealthy countries to do more because we're all under all countries, um, wealthy included, are under these extreme pressures right now to deal with the economic crisis and the health crisis that is within their own populations. Let's close by asking both Anna and Catherine, as we've closed with all of our other podcasts in this series to tell us, okay, this is a tough one. This is a really tough challenge we're looking at here. It's a terribly important challenge. So what gives us optimism and hope that we may see progress in this? Uh, Anna, you wanna take a quick stab at that and then we'll let Catherine close things.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's really exciting to see so much just technical and biomedical, biotechnical progress and acceleration over the last six months. And you know, while while we've talked about at the sort of state and international level, the field being very competitive and nationalistic at the subnational level, we've actually seen extraordinary amounts of collaboration between academia and universities and, and foundations and different institutions to to share data and share protocols to try to move this race forward. Um, and I you know I hope that ultimately that will result in a safe and effective vaccine, hopefully multiple. Um, You know, the first vaccine that's approved may not be the best, but the race will continue and the effort will continue. And hopefully, you know, taken together, cumulatively, those efforts will result in some some effective vaccines that can really curb the, the worst impact of this pandemic and generate, you know, sort of offshoot biomedical developments and advances that can strengthen health security in the long run.
1: Thanks, Catherine. What gives you hope?
2: Sure.
0: I mean first I would agree that the
2: long history of research and international collaboration around biomedical innovation and vaccines in particular, you know, is an excellent basis for beginning this this, you know, kind of investigation and this kind of work. I think the fact that there is really considerable capacity not just in the high-income countries, you know, say in in, you know, North America and Europe and and in Asia, but also in many of the middle-income countries and increasingly in some of the lower-income countries also should really be a source of, I guess, you know, hope or inspiration in the sense that, you know, as new vaccines are approved and become proven, you know, they may be able to be scaled up very quickly in diverse regions of the world. And, you know, finally, I would say, you know, while to some extent we've seen that there has been a considerable you know sort of infodemic or challenge set of challenges around misinformation related to covid and vaccines in particular and communications presents a challenge i think it also presents some opportunities for rethinking how we communicate about health how we communicate about immunizations and really finding new and creative ways to build trust with the public not just around immunizations but around health in general
1: Thank you so much, Catherine. I want to thank both of you, Catherine and Anna, for partnering in putting this paper together. It's been really a great effort, and I think it's paid off beautifully. Um, I want to remind our listeners, you can find this paper, which is titled, Is It Possible to Avert Chaos in the Vaccine Scramble? It's a CSIS brief. You can find it at csis.org. And I do hope you find it and enjoy it. So thank you all.